Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we have this summer been uh, going through this series, looking at questions I've always wanted to ask God. And again, the reason for going through this whole series is because we want to be the kind of church where people can be honest about their doubts and struggles and ask those questions um, rather than just kind of pretending everything is okay. And um, we did put together a reading list because every Sunday I find these questions are just so overwhelming. There's so much to cover and so little time. And I want to give them um, uh, you know, attention. I don't want to just give surfacey answers, but the, the answers are so much deeper than, than I can possibly do, um, certainly more than I can do in t- 30 minutes or so. So um, on our website, we've put together a reading list of some really, really good books that would be helpful for you um, to study further and further. Um, This morning's question is probably the toughest one and probably the question that is asked more than any other. And it's this one. How can a good God allow suffering to continue in this world? Now, that is a really, really tough question. And I am not going to even become close to answering that this morning, but I'm going to do my best to give some insight to it. But I want to break it down into two different areas because that question can be asked in two different ways. It can be asked um, in a skeptic's way um, that, that looks for an academic answer. You know, how can a good God allow such evil and suffering to prevail in this world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Now, on one level, that's an argument that, that's a really tough one to address. And we're going to try and do that this morning. But on a deeper level... That question goes to the heart of anyone who's gone through a time of suffering. And the answer there is far, far deeper than just trying to find an academic answer for it because it's not an academic question. It's an emotional one. And I think it's a question that every one of us have asked at one point or another in our lives. In fact, just by a show of hands, anybody here ever had that question pop into your head ever in your life? Yeah. How can it be? How can it be that a good God would allow suffering to continue in this world? And and the Bible doesn't give us all the answers to this, but there is, I think, a key passage in Scripture, and it comes from Paul's letter to the Roman church. And Paul, by the way, is not someone who wrote on an academic level, although he wrote many academic things. But this is a guy who knew suffering. Okay, this is a guy who went through tremendous suffering because of his faith. And he wrote to a church in Rome that was about to go through a very, very, very difficult time. Incredibly difficult time of persecution. So much so that people would lose their lives for their faith. So he's not just addressing this on an academic level, although there is some answers there. He is really getting to the heart, I think, of what's going on here. So if you want to follow along in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes these words. Beginning in verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as a sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is then he that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a lot there. (laughs) It's an incredibly hopeful passage, but it's not just kind of a wishful thinking kind of hope. Paul is grappling with this real issue. And it's, and it's not just that bad things happen to bad people. It's that bad things happen to good people. How can that be? And we're going to look at that this morning. And the first thing I wanted to help you understand is that evil and suffering do not disprove the existence of God. Because there is evil and suffering in this world, that doesn't disprove the existence of God. Now, those who are skeptics, atheists, agnostics, Make the argument something along the lines of this. God is supposed to be good. Therefore, he doesn't like the presence of evil and suffering in this world. And God is supposed to be great. So he ought to be able to do something about it. But there is evil and there is suffering in this world. Therefore, there must not be a God. Because there can't possibly be a God who is both great and powerful and still allow this to keep going on in our world. And that's a pretty convincing argument. And even those who would want to believe, maybe even put it in a slightly different way and say, well, okay, evil does exist in this world and I believe there's a God, but then he must either be a good and kindly God who really can't do anything about the pain in this world And he's just kind of like this feeble old grandfather who wishes it wasn't happening, but he really can't do anything about it. Or, on the other hand, he is this powerful despot who is uncaring and couldn't be bothered in the least that stuff is going wrong in this world. But either way, you're still left with a God who doesn't seem to respond to what's going on in this world. So, what is it? What is it? How does this keep going on? There just can't possibly be a God who allows such things to happen. Well, I think Paul gives us in this passage another option. There's another option, another answer to this question. And the answer is this. And it really comes down to how God created us. Because humanity 
has been uniquely created in the image of God. That's what we're told. In fact, you go back to the creation story. It says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He makes the point twice that we are uniquely created. We are different than every other aspect of all of God's creation. And a part of that image of God is this ability to choose. That God has given to us, God who is a free being, created us in his image with this freedom to choose. We call it free will. And that we have this ability to make choices. And that separates us from all other parts of God's creation. This ability to choose, it makes us different. And we know that. We know that to be the case. Because we never put an animal on trial for committing murder. We, we never do that. Why don't we do that? Because they're just acting out of instinct. A bear mauls a camper. We don't bring that bear in and put him on trial. Because he's just doing what bears naturally do. Humanity, however, we hold to a different level. To a higher standard. Because we know instinctively we are different. We are rational beings. We have the ability to make this choice. And with that freedom of choice comes the freedom to do good. But also, with that choice comes the freedom to do evil. And if we didn't have the choice between the two, we wouldn't really have any free will. Well, why did God create us in this way? Why did he make us with this free will? Because God created us for a relationship with him in a way that he created no other part of his his creation for that purpose. And love and relationship requires the choice to not be in it. You cannot compel love. You cannot make somebody love you. I know that. Because when I was 16 years old and I had a crush on a girl who did not love me, I did everything I could. But it just didn't work out. Fortunately, because then I met my wife. And she made a better choice, okay? But that's the nature of it. To be in a relationship requires the choice to not be in it. Otherwise, it's not a real relationship. Created with the ability to choose good also comes with it the ability to choose wrong and to choose evil. And God created us. And in that garden, the story is told that God said, okay, you have a choice. You can do things my way in a relationship with me, trusting me, or you can choose to do it your way. And we chose to do it our way. Last week when we were talking about Scripture, that we need to understand Scripture as, as, a, as almost like a play that is written in six acts. And I know some people came to me after because I never got to act six, okay? So let me repeat. Act one is creation. That God creates and it is good. In fact, it says he, is, he said it is very good. But act two is the fall. When man chooses, mankind chooses to not be a part of what God has created. To find out for himself and herself evil and good by experience. We call that the fall. Act three is when God begins his redemptive work through a man called Abraham and to his descendants who were called the nation of Israel. And through that whole process, God is beginning this restoration 
and redemption of what has been lost because of the fall. And we come to act four in which God himself, Jesus Christ, comes to this world and takes on humanity's suffering and brokenness and deals with every aspect of it, yet without sin. So when he dies on a cross, he doesn't pay the penalty for his sin or his rebellion, but for ours. And now we live in act five that has come after what Christ has already done. And there is an act six, and we're going to get to that. But it is this, that someday God is going to make everything right the way it was intended to be from the beginning. And that is the final closing act. And right now, we need to understand in act five that as we look back, We look back through the lens of act four. It all begins to make sense, not only the past, but even our future because of act four, when Christ came and took that all on himself. That's when it begins to make sense that we made this choice. And that story, that story that is human history story is the story of each and every one of us, because it's not just somebody else made this decision. We make that decision every day. Every day, I make a choice whether I'm going to do things God's way or if I'm going to do them my way. And unfortunately, nine times out of ten, I probably choose to do it my way. And with that comes consequences. Because for there truly to be right and wrong, for there truly to be good and evil, then there must be some resulting consequence to it. Otherwise, it really doesn't matter. If there is no consequence, then why does it matter whether we do good or evil? And so part of this fall is that God gave us a world of natural law in which our actions have outcomes to them. Our good actions can bring about good results and our evil actions can bring about evil results. And the course of human history is a record of mankind choosing evil over good. And that story of, human, of humanity is our story too. And it's part of God's bigger story of what he's doing in this world. And so we don't have to look too far back in human history to see the outcome of those who've chosen evil. And sometimes it's been horrendous evil in men like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Pol Pot and, and on and on the list goes of people who, who killed masses of people. For their own selfish reasons. And not too long ago, even in our own Bay Area, a man named Philip Garrardo kidnapped a young girl named J.C. Dugard and held her for years as his own personal toy. That's evil in its extreme. But the truth is that every one of us to some degree or another, make choices that are self-serving and self-interested, and they do inflict harm on other people. So you could say that really most of the suffering in this world is not God's problem. It's not God's fault. It's man's. It's mankind's fault. The vast majority of suffering and evil in this world is the direct result of human action and activity. And you can't blame God for something that he didn't do. It's like, I've told this before, one of my guilty pleasures is Judge Judy. Okay, I I watch Judge Judy. I, I admit it. But it is amazing to me the justification that people have for their actions. 
And, and I was watching not too long ago when that somebody had loaned their car to somebody else who, who went out and, and actually just gave them the keys to their car because they were going to be on vacation and asked them to just move their car because um, when the street sweepers were going to come by, they needed the car moved someone, while they were gone. And so this person took the keys to the car, went out, went out for a joyride, had an accident, totaled out the car, and her defense was, well, she, never, she shouldn't have ever given me the keys in the first place. It's her fault. She gave me the keys. I mean, that's the way we act. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. But the vast majority of human suffering is caused by men. Now, it might be helpful to make a distinction this morning a little bit between evil and suffering. Okay, evil, evil is perpetuated at the hands of humans with free will. Okay, evil is always something that man brings on, that woman brings on. That's evil, okay? And evil causes suffering. However, not all suffering is the result of evil. Suffering is simply the result of a painful experience. And some painful experiences are not directly caused by the evil of people. Earthquakes, famines, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions... On and on and on we could go. Now, it could be argued to some degree that there is still a human element in every one of those things. Because if an eruption happens somewhere in this world where there's no human beings around, well, then it's just an eruption. If an earthquake happens where nobody has built, then it's just an earthquake. If a tsunami comes and floods through, but nobody lives there, it's not a personal tragedy. Nobody gets hurt. It's just a tsunami. But we, on the other hand, choose to live in an area that is filled with earthquakes. (laughs) And you can't really blame God for an earthquake that happens that we just happen to build our homes on fault lines. I mean, you know, and we've had a few warnings about this. You know, there's been a few earthquakes in our area that should say, maybe there's another place we ought to live. So there is a human element there, but it's not caused by humanity. And to that, I can say there's no real answer to why those things happen. Part of it is that God brought about this thing. He said, okay, if you're going to choose to do it your way, then some things you're going to learn the hard way. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. In other words, God said, okay, you can choose my way or you can choose to do it your way. If you choose my way and simply trust me, it will be the best for you. However, you have the choice and you can choose it this way. But just understand, now that you have chosen this way, there are consequences to that. Now, there's debate as to how far that curse extends. Are earthquakes and Natural disasters and those kinds of things. Are those part of the curse? Maybe, maybe not. One of the things that we are finding is what makes the human planet inhabitable for, man, for, for life to occur is, is, is many of the things that we see as acts of God. Natural disasters. For instance, the whole idea of earthquakes and, 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 um, and volcanic eruptions come from something that's called plate tectonics. That, that our world and continents are drifting and, and there are fault lines all the way all over the world. Now, that's a horrible thing, except that it is the very thing that causes ridges and trenches. 
And if it were not for plate tectonics, we would not have land to live on. Because if all the, all the land was at the same level, the water level would be higher. Because there's more water than there is land mass on this planet. So even something like that may or may not be a result of the fall. It may just be the result of the way things are. But one of the things that we need to understand is because there's evil and suffering, that doesn't necessarily mean things have gone wrong. It may be that it's just part of what makes things the way they are. One of my favorite, um, and especially because when I was in high school, this was really, really trippy. M.C. Escher, anybody seen any of his artwork? Okay, let me put one of these up here on the, on the ground, on the screen. Okay, he was a master at being able to see positive and negative images in things. And he did this thing. When you look at this picture, do you see an angel or do you see demons? Do you see angels or demons? You see both, actually. At first, maybe your eye is drawn to the white in the center, and that's an angel. But then you start looking at the dark area around it, and you go, oh, wait, no, those are demons. No, they're, well, take my word for it. The the picture was better. They would be demons. They're meant to be demons, not just bats, okay? But the idea is this, that, that part of, it could very well be that part of the creation that is the unexplained, is, is the open spaces filled in. That it's simply the way things are that makes this world inhabitable for life. We don't know. What we do know and what does make clear in Scripture is this world is not the way it was supposed to be. That we do know. And that is part of the answer. I may suffer pain in an earthquake because I chose to live on a fault line. I can go to my doctor. I recently went to my doctor. Told me your cholesterol is just a little bit on the high side. I've never had this problem in my life. Now I'm in my 50s. All of a sudden, I got a cholesterol problem. Now I got a choice what I'm going to do with that. I can change my habits and lifestyle to adapt to this new reality in my life. Or I can choose to continue to live the way that I was and suffer the consequences. But it's my choice. See, that, that's where the free will thing comes in. So on an academic level, there is reasons to understand this. One of the things we do know is this is not the way it was supposed to be. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the question is, again, why doesn't God do something? If that's the nature of things, then why doesn't he do something about it? And the answer is, he does. He has. And in fact, evil and suffering are the very reason for God's redemptive work in this world. Remember that, that play in six acts. That, that's all the story of God redeeming back what was lost. That what was created in act one was very good. And acts two through five are the story of God bringing things back to the way they were meant to be. And God has done this. And when Paul writes about this, he writes about this from prison. And he's about to go on trial for his life. And eventually, he will suffer 
execution at the hands of Nero, who, by the way, just for sport, used Christians as torchlight in the evenings. So the people that he's writing to in Rome are about to go through some of the most horrendous, horrendous suffering of anybody in human history. And he's writing to them to help them understand, listen, God is still at work. You may not see it, but it doesn't mean he hasn't done something about it. And it doesn't mean that he is not currently doing something about it. In fact, the whole thing of evil and suffering is the reason that God is at work. It's the reason why he's doing this. So on a pastoral level, what does it mean when we go through times of suffering? On the personal level, because maybe you're here this morning and that, you're in the middle of that kind of stuff. And that, well, that great, that's a great academic answer, but that doesn't help my heart right now because I'm, I'm just torn up inside. Again, I think Paul gives us some hope. One of the things is he wants us to understand God is with you in your suffering. Because very often when we're going through times of difficulty, when times of suffering, when, when it feels like the rug's been pulled out from under us, one of the biggest questions is, God, where are you? Where are you? How could you abandon me when I need you the most? And one of the things that Paul is saying is, no, 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 he hasn't. He is doing his work in you. He hasn't left you. He says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt wordless groans? I don't even know what to pray, God. I don't even know what to say. I am so overwhelmed. I, I can't even put it into words. Paul's saying, here's one thing you can know for sure. Though it seems like God's abandoned you and you can't even vocalize the pain that's in your heart and life right now, he's with you. And he's right there with you. And in fact, when you can't even pray, he is super praying for you. He has not abandoned you. And you may not know all the answers And you may never find the answers to all of it. But one thing you can know is you're not left alone. I think in times of suffering, God seems the most absent and doesn't care because we can't see him. It feels like we have been abandoned. Put this up on the screen. Let me ask you, what does that say? God is nowhere? Try it, the next one with a little bit of spacing. God is now here. Same words. And that's just one way of saying it's just a matter of perspective. It may seem like God is nowhere, but the truth is God is now here. The one thing you can know for sure is he hasn't left you alone. He has not abandoned you. The other thing that Paul tells us is that even in that, that God can make good out of bad. Whatever suffering you might be going through, God can still make good out of it. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Now, I want to make real clear here. He is not saying that everything's good. What he is saying is that God can make everything good. 
Because sometimes, and, and I hear this all the time, and I just want to shout, no! Because <laughs> people will say things like, well, everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. It doesn't all happen for a reason. God doesn't cause evil and suffering. Be very, very clear about that. But God can bring reason to anything and everything that happens. And those are two very, very different concepts. To say everything happens for a reason means God's in control and God's brought this on me and somehow he's got a reason for it. And and, and I just want to tell you, God does not do that with our lives. But what Paul is saying is no matter how bad things get and how misunderstanding or ununderstandable it might be for you, God can make good out of bad. God can even make good out of evil. Remember we said everything begins to make sense when you look at Jesus on the cross. That's the defining moment in human history. Because in that moment, God was doing his greatest work, his most redemptive work, his final act of restoration and redemption in the greatest and most horrendous evil that was ever perpetrated on this earth. And that's what God does. God redeems. God restores. And we may not always see the results. But we can know that God can make good. And we may never even see the good. But he's saying, you can trust God that he can use this redemptively. And I've talked to many, many people who have gone through intense, terrible times in their lives and have come out the other side and sometimes not till years later look back and said, wow, I would never choose to go through that again. But because of that, I am a different person. I am a better person. And that's God's redemptive work. That one of the things that we can know is that God can bring good out of evil. God can bring good out of suffering. It's what he does. There's a third thing, fourth thing. God can use suffering to shape our character. Puts it this way earlier in the letter. We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. If you think about it, if we lived in a world that never had any pain or any suffering, we would be some pretty smug, self-righteous people. Self-satisfied, self-indulgent, because there would never be any consequences to any of our bad choices. And we would certainly have no need for God whatsoever. But somehow suffering brings us to the point where we understand there are some changes that need to take place in our lives. And God can actually use suffering to make us better people. The story is told of, of um, Mother Teresa as she was caring for one of the lepers in India and, and actually hugging this leper. And she heard, uh, overheard two Indians who were walking by. And one of them said, I would never, I would never do that, not for all the money in the world. And her answer was, neither would I, but I do it for the love of Christ. Change perspective. Sometimes it's not even our own suffering, but it's observed suffering that moves us to action. Reminded of Tom Agam, president of Hope for Kids International. And, and we've partnered with them a lot. Our 
team is going to Uganda with him uh, in a couple of weeks. But one of the things, he, he's written a book, and he says, Lord, why haven't you heard their prayers? Because he went to Uganda and saw the suffering of AIDS orphans, and he was so devastated, and he cried out to God, why haven't you heard their prayers? And the answer came back to him, I have. And that's why you're here. And you're going to do something about it. And it opened a whole new area of ministry that organization in his life. See, God will use suffering, not even our own suffering sometimes, to move us to become better people, to become more Christ-like. And the last one is that God can use suffering to turn our hearts to eternity. See, this whole idea that things are not the way it's supposed to be, this whole struggle that we have with, with pain and evil and suffering in this world, the reason it bothers us so much is because we know it shouldn't be this way. And that knowing it shouldn't be this, this way is what God has planted in us is this longing for home. That we are longing for a world that is better. That we want a place where evil and suffering and pain are no more. And that's what Paul's writing about when he says all creation groans like the pains of childbirth. The pain is very, very real, he says, but it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. And that's why the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes so much sense. It makes sense of all of human history. And that's why Paul wrote, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That through the sufferings of Christ, we have a way home. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ says, death doesn't get the last word. Pain is not the end of the story. Evil doesn't win. God overcomes it all. And someday, someday there will be, there will be that closing act in which all is made right and all is restored. And, and, and John wrote about a new heavens and a new earth. And Paul talked about death being swallowed up in victory. That this, this next life is not just compensation for, for what we're going. It is the culmination of what we are going through. And that is our hope. And that is our promise. And that is our reality. It is a living hope. Because the resurrection is the promise that God is indeed making everything right. And someday, someday it will. And there will be no more pain. And every tear will be wiped dry because God has completed his redemptive work. And it's not just some spiritual realm. It's something very, very physical because he says all creation is longing for this. All creation. And that's why he goes on and he says, so I am convinced. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the cross doesn't give us all the answers. It doesn't tell us why all of this goes on. Not completely, but the one thing the cross does tells us, tell us, we know what's going to happen. And we know, we know because of the cross, 
that whatever the answer is, the answer is not that God doesn't care. It is not that God doesn't love us. And it is not that God has turned a blind eye to this world that has fallen apart. The cross and the resurrection says God is making all things new. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. Thank you.